0: Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, Revolution, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. Here is
1: Pastor Nick. Jesus came to bring a revolution to this world. That's what this series is about. He came to turn this world upside down. And here in the book of Acts, what we're reading about is the story of how this revolution which Jesus began, how in the generation following, it spread throughout the whole world. And even to this day, we know that it continues to spread. On the topic of revolution, Jim Morrison, uh, the front man for the doors, he said this, He said, there cannot be any large-scale revolution until there's a personal revolution on an individual level. It's got to happen inside first. He was absolutely right, wasn't he? Before we can join this revolution that Jesus came to bring, before you can take a revolution to the world, a revolution first has to take place inside of you. Before you can turn the world upside down, your world has got to get turned upside down first. Before you can be an agent of change in the world, you've got to be changed. You've got to be transformed. And as much as Jim Morrison was right, as much as he knew this much to be true, uh, the problem is that Jim Morrison, he had no way of actually doing that. He had no way of actually being changed and transformed and have a revolution on the inside in the recesses of his soul. Because the only way to be truly transformed and truly changed in the core of your being To become a new person from the ground up, the only way that that happens is through embracing Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross. And history tells that story. It tells the story that Jim Morrison never actually started a revolution that changed the world, but there is one movement in history that has changed the world as we know it in the most fundamental and, and widespread ways, and that is Christianity. The book of Acts tells the story of the greatest revolution the world has ever known. It's a revolution that continues on to this day in every generation. To be a Christian is to experience this revolution personally and then to join this revolution corporately. The aim of this revolution of Christianity, the aim of it is nothing less than to turn the world upside down. If you've read the news lately, I'm sure you're well aware of how topsy-turvy our world is and how much need there is for this kind of revolution that turns our topsy-turvy world upside down, how much that's needed in our generation. So here in the book of Acts, we're going to pick up our story. We've been traveling uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through this book for uh, several months now, and now we get to this point in the story. Paul is on his second missionary journey as we begin at the beginning of chapter 17. He's with two other men, his companions on this journey, Silas and Timothy, and they are traveling through modern-day Greece. They're going city to city, sharing with people the news of who Jesus was and what Jesus did for them, and as they do that, they're also established. Establishing churches to be outposts and beacons of this revolutionary gospel everywhere they go. And here in Acts chapter 17, there's a statement which is made uh, which really defines and, and says what the whole book of Acts is all about. That's It's part of the reason we call this series Revolution. In verse 6 of chapter 17, we read this, that this is what the people of this certain town said when the Christians came to their town. They said this, those men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. These people who have turned the world upside down everywhere they've gone, now they've come here too. So the title of today's message is, To Turn the World Upside Down. And as we look at this section, we're going to see three factors in regard to how these early Christians turned the world upside down in their generation, and how those are true for us as well. And we truly seek to do nothing less than to turn the world upside down in our generation as well. Here's what those three factors were, and then we're going to look at them. First, there was conviction. Second, there was provocation. And third, there was action. So conviction, provocation, and action. We'll begin by looking at conviction. Please read with me Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Paul and Timothy and Silas, they now come to Thessalonica, which is a large port city in northern Greece. This is still actually a large thriving city in Greece to this day. It goes by the name now of Saloniki. And as was his custom, upon coming to a new city, Paul went to the synagogue and starting there he began telling people about Jesus. Turning the world upside down, it begins with conviction. And here's, here's what their conviction was. There was something they believed. Many of them hadn't, they hadn't always believed it. Paul himself hadn't always believed it, but it was something they came to believe. And this was their conviction. Had a couple parts. First of all, it was this, that Jesus was the Christ. That was the first thing about their conviction. They believed that Jesus was the Christ. For thousands of years, the Jewish prophets, the Jewish scriptures had promised that one day God was going to send a savior. He was known in Hebrew as the Messiah. In Greek, he was known as the Christ. And it was promised that when he came, he would make things right. He would make things right again. He would defeat evil. And he would set people free from the curse of sin and death. And the conviction that the Christians had is that Jesus was that one. He was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was the Savior. But their conviction went deeper than just that. It was also this. Their conviction was that in order to save us, this Savior, the Christ, he needed to do two things. He needed to die. He had to die. He had to suffer and die. And he had to rise from the dead. He needed to suffer in order to save us. Why? Well, because we have sinned. And the wages of our sin is death. But the good news of the gospel is that God sent the Christ, his son, to pay that price for us and die in our place. See, this is what was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. When Isaiah said this, speaking of this one who was to come, he said, He was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was put the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes, we are healed. You know, the story is told of a train bridge operator in a small town along a river. And this train bridge operator, his job every day was to work the levers, which set in motion the great set of gears, which raised and lowered a bridge over the river. And so he would raise it for the ships to pass underneath, and he would lower the bridge for the passenger trains and the freight trains to cross over the river. It was quite a boring job, honestly. It wasn't glorious. He did the same thing every day. There was a lot of downtime But it paid the bills, right? And the man was able to put food on the table for his wife and their one son. And the man often brought his son to work with him. And the boy would sit with his father in the booth watching his father raise and lower the bridge. And of course, being that there was so much downtime, uh, the boy would often play near the river and around the bridge. One day as the man was at work, you know, completely routine day, it came time to lower the bridge. A ship had passed recently and now because the passenger train was speeding along the tracks towards the bridge, uh, it was completely routine. He would go through his safety protocol and he'd blow the whistle and then he'd lower the bridge as he did every day. But as he went through his safety protocol that day, the the bridge operator saw something, something that horrified him, something that made his heart freeze inside his chest. And that was that as he looked down upon the gears that moved the bridge, he noticed that his son was climbing on those gears, uh, which he was supposed to move to lower the bridge. And so he yelled down to his son to get his attention, but his son couldn't hear him. And there he is now faced with this horrific decision. What do you do? whether you allow hundreds of men, women, and children on the train to perish, or do you crush your own son in order that those people might live? And as the train barreled forward, you know, getting ever closer to the bridge, the man completely destroyed, completely heartbroken, he closed his eyes and he pulled the lever and the only sound he heard was the sound of the train rumbling past him across the bridge and past his booth. And this man cried out in anguish within his booth and as he he looks out the window of his booth and he looks at the people on the train, you know, reading newspapers and playing games, men, women, and children, completely oblivious to the fact that he had just sacrificed his own son for them. Well, that is in essence what God has done for us in Christ. That he crushed his son so that we might live, so that we might be saved The Christ had to suffer and die. He had to. Why? He had to so that we could be saved. Jesus took our place in death so that we could take his place in life and he did it out of love. That's the beauty of it. But that's not the end of the story. See, the death of Jesus, it isn't a tragedy. It's a victory because after dying for our sins, Jesus also rose from the dead. And having defeated death, having defeated evil, not only to take our sins away, but to set us free from the curse of death, And to make it able for us to be with him for eternity. So this was the conviction that these Christians had. Their conviction was that the Christ had to die. He had to suffer. He had to die in our place so that we could be saved. It was the only way. And he had to rise from the dead so that we could join him in everlasting life. These Christians who turned the world upside down, it all began with a conviction. That was the baseline for it. A belief about their nature, about their destiny, and about what Jesus had done to change their destiny. But beyond just having a conviction, the next aspect of how these early Christians changed the world was this. They had provocation. Go down with me to verse 16. We're going to skip ahead a little bit. Uh, to verse 16, it says this When Paul came to Athens, that's where he's going to go in a couple cities from now. We'll, we'll catch up in a minute. When Paul came to Athens and he was waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him, read this His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols.
0: You've been listening to a message by Pastor Nick Cady of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We'll get back to the remainder of this message in a moment. We are open for in-person worship on Sunday mornings with services at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Come grow with us on Sunday mornings, online or in person at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Now back to Pastor Nick
1: with the remainder of today's message. Something happened to Paul when he was in Athens. It was something that had happened to him not only there in Athens, it was something that had not only happened to him, this was something that happened to many Christians, and not only there, but in every place where they went. There they were in this most historic, this most beautiful, this most iconic city, the center of Greek civilization and culture, a place that people still flock to to this day to see the architectural beauty of the Parthenon and the Acropolis. And I'm sure that Paul appreciated the beauty and the skill behind the art and the architecture of this great city. But yet the overwhelming feeling that Paul was overcome with as he walks the streets of Athens is a burden for the spiritual state of the people of that city. He was provoked He was incited. He was filled with emotion. To be provoked in your spirit is to, I'll put it this way, to be provoked in your spirit for a given area is to see how the men and women of that area have chosen a pursuit that will end in bankruptcy and it will end in destruction and to be moved with godly sorrow and compassion and love and be moved to engage those people for the good of their lives, for the good of their souls with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the only way that will happen is if you first have a conviction. A conviction about the absolute beauty and the absolute necessity of what Jesus did on the cross. The conviction that the Christ had to suffer and die and rise on the third day because there was no other way for us to be saved and forgiven and made right with God and and have hope beyond the grave the absolute necessity that the Christ had to suffer and die for me, and the absolute beauty that not only did he have to, but God was glad to do that for me, because that's how huge his love for me, and that's how huge his love for you is. He had to, but he was glad to. To be provoked is to see the beauty of what God has for people, and that they're not even pursuing it, or that they're pursuing some kind of counterfeit to it that absolutely will lead to bankruptcy and and destruction. That's what Paul felt as he looked out over the city of Athens and he saw that it was full of counterfeit gods. Interestingly, this idea behind this phrase, full of idols, it literally means that it was covered in idols, that the city was drowning, it was sinking underneath idols. There was a saying at this time, actually, outside of Christian writings even, that in Athens, it was easier to find an idol than it was to find a person. And Paul, as he looks over this great city, he's overwhelmed with emotion because he realizes that these people are missing out on what God has for them. They're they're pursuing counterfeit gods that cannot save them and, and that will ultimately lead them to bankruptcy and destruction. You know, we have counterfeit gods in our day, in our culture as well. And let me ask you, do you ever have that feeling inside of you of being provoked in your spirit? It's the feeling that Jesus had when it says that he, he walked onto the Mount of Olives, that hill that overlooks Jerusalem, and he looked over the city, and he wept, and he said, oh, that you would have known this day. Oh, that you would have known this day the things that lead to peace, the things that make for peace. See, that's the feeling that Paul had as he looked over the city of Athens. He said, look, you've got money, you've got knowledge, you've got it all. On the outside, it looks like you've got it all together, but I know that these things will leave you empty. There's more joy to be had, there's more life to be lived, there's something better available to you than this way that you're living and these things that you're pursuing, oh, that you only knew. Behind the marble statues, behind the magnificent buildings, Paul saw the emptiness, he saw the darkness, he saw the hopelessness, and he was provoked in his spirit. He was moved, and that's why it says that the result of that in the following verses is that he then went into the city on a mission. He went engaging people through conversations through which he could share the good news of the gospel with them. Let me ask you this, how about you? When you look around your neighborhood, when you watch TV and you see what is celebrated, When you read about a particular place, a country or a city, and and you're filled with passion, a godly grief, a godly compassion and love for those people because you know that God has more for them than what they're currently living for and pursuing. And you feel moved. You say in your heart, oh, that it wasn't this way. Oh, that they would know. Oh, that they would know the freedom, that they would know the joy, that they would know the life that is offered to them in Jesus Christ. That feeling of being provoked in your spirit for the sake of other people. What does it come from? It comes from that baseline conviction of the beauty and the absolute necessity of the gospel. That like the people on that speeding train going towards that, that bridge over the river. They're just talking and smiling and being entertained. Not even realizing what they're headed towards. And the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. Because the Christ had to suffer. He had to. And the good news is that he did. He did. And even more than that, he rose from the grave, that we might be saved, that we might have full and abundant life both now and for eternity. It was the feeling of being provoked in his spirit for the sake of of people who were living and dying apart from the knowledge of God. That is what moved Paul to action. It was that feeling which led Paul to go on these missionary journeys and to go from city to city facing beatings and imprisonments and slander and false accusations all along the way. What keeps him going doing that? It's this. This feeling of being provoked in his spirit, of being moved. And this is the same feeling that has moved Christians throughout history to leave home, to give up financial resources, to take the gospel to their neighbors and to the next town and to countries halfway across the the earth, to the ends of the earth. In every generation, this conviction about the absolute beauty and the absolute necessity of the gospel has led Christians to look around and be provoked in their spirits as they see people living and dying without even understanding how much God loves them, without even knowing what Jesus did for them to make a way for them to be truly alive. And that conviction, that provocation, has moved Christians in every generation to action. And I would encourage you to see your world, try to see your world, the way that Paul saw Athens, the way that Jesus saw Jerusalem. Because when you've got a conviction about the absolute beauty and the absolute necessity of the gospel, and because of that, you're provoked in your spirit for the sake of people around you, it inevitably leads to the third thing we see here, and that is action. And here were the actions. We're going to go through these verses one at a time. Let's read um, from verse 1. It says, They came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days. And here's what he did. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaimed to you is the Christ. And then it says, Some of them were persuaded. There are three words that I want to draw your attention to because we're talking about actions. What are the actions that Paul was driven to? Three words that that tell us what these actions were through which the early Christians turned the world upside down. First of all, it says that they reasoned. Second, they explained. And third, they persuaded. Now think about each of these words. They're actually very, uh, you know, pretty profound. The Greek word here that's translated reasoned is the same word from which we get our English word dialogue. So here's what Paul would do. He'd come into a place and he'd say, let's dialogue. Let's have a conversation. Let's talk. What what about this? What about that? Why don't you tell me what you think about this, and then I'll tell you what I think about it. It was a dialogue. It was a discussion, a conversation. But that's not all. It says next that he explained. And that in Greek, that word explain, it literally means to open up. And that's what we hope to do here every Sunday at Whitefields. I hope to open up the scriptures and explain what they teach. Here's what it says. Let's look at it and let's understand it together. And there were, so there was a dialogue. Then there was explanation, opening the scriptures, explaining what the scriptures state but that wasn't all. After the dialogue, after the explanation came one more thing, and that was persuasion. He sought to persuade them. He said, okay, uh, I've explained it. We've dialogued, but now I'm going to try to persuade you. I want you to change your mind about Jesus. I want you to, to make a decision. And what was he trying to persuade them of? Well, of course, the same as usual, who Jesus was and what he did for them. Now, someone might say, isn't it a bit presumptuous to go around all the time trying to persuade people to believe what you believe. I think that a lot of people here, especially where we live, they look at Christianity and they say, you know, that is a nice religion with a lot of nice teachings, right? I love the community aspect and I I respect the family values and I I love the idea of loving your enemies and, and putting other people before yourself. Those are all good things, you know, but the one part about Christianity that is really hard for me is this. It's just so narrow, right? And why are you always trying to convert people to what you believe? See, in our society, it's considered arrogant to claim that you know the truth and that other people should believe what you believe. But imagine this, imagine someone you love and you see in that person the symptoms of a sickness which you used to have. And you know that that sickness is life-threatening and you know what had to be done in your life in order to heal you from it. But this person doesn't recognize that they're sick. They don't even think anything is wrong at all. And so what would you do? Well, you would start out by telling them about your experience, dialoguing with them, explaining, and then what would you do? You would try to persuade them. You would dialogue with them, you would explain, and then you would finally try to persuade them. See, that's what evangelism is. It's about caring for someone and knowing the truth about their condition, their condition and knowing the truth about how they can be cured. That's what evangelism is all about. When you have the truth and you have love, when those two meet, you cannot help but be a person on a mission. If you have truth but you don't care about other people, then there is no mission. If you care about other people, but you don't have the truth that's needed to help them, then there is no mission. But when you have love and truth, and when those two collide, mission is the result. When you have both of those together, you have to be a person on mission. That's exactly what Christians have. Love for people and truth conviction and provocation and therefore we can't help but be moved to action. And so we read in verse 4 that some of them were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas as did a many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. See this is the beginning of the church in Thessalonica. This is the same church to which Paul later writes the New Testament letters of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. But their time there in Thessalonica wasn't uh, without difficulty. It wasn't without opposition. We read in verse 5. But the Jews became jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city, uh, the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also." What these people in Thessalonica said about the Christians was was really a wonderful compliment. It was really an incredible testimony to the effectiveness of their work. They had turned the world upside down. They had radically impacted the world so that wherever they went, things were different than before. I'm sure that when Paul and the other Christians, they heard that this is what people were saying about them. This is the reputation they had earned, that they they were people who turned the world upside down. They must have said, wow, do you really think so? Because that's exactly what we were trying to do. You see, the thing with these people in Thessalonica and, and people in other places is that they assumed that the way things are, that the world is right side up to begin with. They thought the norms of their society were normal. But just like in our society, there are many things that are considered normal, which which in fact are not normal at all. There are things which our society says are normal, but they're upside down. They may be normal in society, but that doesn't mean they're right. It doesn't mean that they're good. And so to turn a topsy-turvy world upside down is to do what? It's to make it right side up. See, Jesus taught values, Jesus taught principles that were completely upside down to the way that people naturally tend to think. In teaching us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, he's saying something that's completely backwards, something that's completely upside down to the normal way that people think.